Amen. We are in Romans chapter 2. We have a lot before us this evening to work through. We'll do it as quickly as possible, but I trust God will bless his word, both the reading of it and the preaching of it to our growth in him. We are in Romans chapter 2. I remind you as you turn there that one of the most important things we should remember as we continue our study in the book of Romans and probably as we continue our study anywhere in the Bible is that context is always king. Context is always king. That is especially true as you follow, as we follow together, Paul's argument in the book of Romans. It's a very carefully laid out argument that he builds upon, one verse upon another. He has an aim in this first uh, section, of course, as we've seen, uh, chapters 1 through 3, and that is to bring to the uh, heart and mind of all to whom he writes that they are all without excuse and all guilty before God and deserving of his wrath and his displeasure. Jew and Gentile alike, that's Paul's way of saying all peoples everywhere because that's how he thought and divided the world. You were either a Jew under and in covenant with God or you were not and outside of that and therefore a Gentile or of the nations all are guilty before the holy God and deserving his eternal wrath and condemnation. As we've studied in chapter 1, beyond the introduction, verses 18 through 32, Paul takes great care to show how that is true of the Gentile and unbelieving world, the nations of the earth. Because of their refusal to acknowledge God as God, as he had so clearly revealed himself in creation, Because of their suppression of that truth about God that he had made plain to them in creation. Paul says, the Lord himself says, that God has given them over to all kinds of impurity and dishonorable passions and a a debased mind so that they delight in what is evil and approve of those things that ought not to be done. And so all men, Paul says, in that first section are without excuse before God. The apostle then turns in chapter 2 to the Jew, his own kinsman, according to the flesh, and those who have received great and precious promises and privileges. He knew their heart because he was once among them as those who thought in the same way. He knew that they would heartily agree that the Gentiles absolutely deserved all that God had given to them in his wrath, for they would say they were wicked, unlike, of course, them. Paul knew that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would be prone to harshly judge the Gentiles and unbelievers, but that he would never treat, God would never treat his own special people, his own chosen people in that way. He knew that they would claim Abraham as their father and believe as the people of old did under the old covenant. God would never destroy his own people. And so in chapter 2, he faces this matter directly, head on. He shows them, as we saw last time, in three ways that they too are without excuse before God. First, he says in those first five verses that they are guilty of hypocrisy. For they judge others, the Gentiles, and rejoice in the judgment of God against them, while they themselves are going about doing the same things. Paul says, how can you possibly expect 
that you will escape God's wrath when they know that God, being holy, will judge those who practice such things. Second, they are guilty of presuming upon God's kindness to them, which ought to have led to their repentance. They have forgotten that all along his mercies throughout all of their history to them were intended to lead them to a love for God and a desire to obey everything that he had commanded them. The kindness and goodness of a father should lead to a delight in his children to walk in obedience. If you read 1 John, that's part of the whole theme of 1 John. If you love me, keep my commandments. And, and so the love of a father to children ought to lead to those children delighting to obey and walk in obedience before them. And then finally, because they had hardened their hearts before God and remained unrepentant, instead of escaping God's wrath, the Lord tells them that they are actually storing up wrath for the day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And so that's still in the future. And that is true of all religious people, uh, people who think they are good and yet have never trusted in Christ. They are actually storing up wrath for the day of God's eternal wrath and judgment that will be revealed. So they too, Paul concludes, his Jewish kinsmen are without excuse before God. Now Paul is prepared to take the argument further and to show the that the judgment of God is according to truth and that it is righteous. But as we will see, he will make this point in a rather striking and somewhat shocking way, perhaps, to our thinking tonight. And those verses are verses 6 through 11. Please stand as we read these verses together, asking that God would bless it to our hearing, to our understanding. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 through verse 11. He, that is God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we pray and plead that you would bless your word to our hearing and growth, your spirit working in and through it, so that we might delight all the more as your people to walk in obedience of life to the praise and glory of your name. We do thank you for all that is ours in Christ. And we pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The unspoken charge against God that Paul is addressing in these verses of chapter 2 seems to me to be a charge by the Jew of Paul's day that God's judgment is unfair. It is unfair towards them. 
But again, remember, it's perfectly fair to the Gentiles. You see, the mindset was that the Jew stood in a special position before God. Because of the covenant and that special position as children of Abraham, that in their minds gave them special privileges. And special privileges meant that they were to receive special treatment. After all, God simply cannot treat them in the same way as he treats the unbelieving, unrepentant, ungodly, unrighteous Gentiles. A term, of course, as you read the New Testament that used by the Jews for Gentiles in Paul's day was the term dogs. It's a derogatory statement commonly used again in Paul's day to speak about Gentiles who were unclean, very unclean according to the law. That's the way they viewed them. No, no different, no better than common dogs, but not the Jews. They had, remember, chapter 9, chapter 3, we looked at those verses last week, how Paul writes about his kinsmen according to the flesh and the privileges that were theirs. They had special privileges. They stood in a special relationship to God. They deserved, therefore, special treatment. So Paul, I think, anticipating this argument in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, after what he has already told them that they are without excuse in verses 1 through 5, and they would cry, foul, Paul, you can't tell us that, that God's going to judge us in the same way. That can't be, Paul, because we're special, we're unique, we're God's chosen people. And so Paul says, okay, I'll tell you how God is going to judge you in response to that mindset. And this is his answer he will render or give to each one according to his works. God will be fair, Paul says. He will treat everyone the same, for God's judgments are altogether righteous. The playing field is level. All are on the same terms. Judgment is now equitable and fair for all, and no one can therefore complain. These verses then give us Paul's response, that response that he will judge each one or render each one according to his works. And he does it under these three points we'll look at tonight. First, Paul is defending in verse 4 God's righteous or defining in verse 4 God's righteous judgment. In verses 7, or verse, that's verse 6, in verses 7 through 10, God's righteous judgment is displayed by Paul. What will happen when God does this? And then in verse 11, God's righteous judgment is defended according to Scripture. The first and last of these three points are very brief, each based on one verse. The middle part, covering four verses, is more uh, full, if you will. So let's look at the first in verse 6. God's righteous judgment defined. What does he mean by this? Here again, very clearly what Paul says. It is a simple, straightforward verse. He, God, speaking of the day of judgment, will render or give to each one in accordance to or according to his works. He, of course, is speaking of that final day of God's judgment when all of humanity will stand before him. And so it is universal, isn't it? It's every person who has ever lived 
And the Bible many places makes that point. It's without exception. It will cover everyone. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. But it's not only universal. Notice as well, as Paul writes, it is also individual. Each one. Not standing with others to protect us, to hide behind, but we will each stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each one individually, to give an account. And Paul says, in that context, a universal individual judgment, that God will render a judgment. And the judgment you see in these verses, not verse 6, but you see later, are in verse 7, eternal life. And verse 8, wrath and fury, we might say hell, eternal damnation. He will render that judgment, eternal life or eternal damnation, based upon man's works. So perhaps for some of you, hard stop here. And we have to think and we have to say, if you have your theological antenna up now, you may wonder whether one of your pastors has lost his mind and drifted into heresy. Did my pastor just say that God will give either eternal life or eternal damnation, wrath and fury, to me based on my works? Yes, I did just say that. And so did Paul. He will render to each one according to his works. But you might further say and argue, wait, this very section, Pastor, that you've said we are studying, chapters 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, seem to make it very clear to me. For 3.20 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And there are countless other verses we could read to prove the point that we are not justified by our works, but by faith alone in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So what about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Pastor? For by grace you are been, have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. Well, if all of that is true, what in the world is Paul saying? How could he be saying two things that are mutually exclusive? God is not the author of confusion. His word does not contradict itself at any place at any time. And so how do these two ideas fit together? Well, first of all, let me assure you, I'm not going down the path of heresy. You know me well enough over these 22 years to know what I believe about these things. I want to show, first of all, what Paul is doing. First of all, you need to know that he's quoting from Scripture itself. In Psalm 62, verse 12, presumably the very place that Paul is quoting from we read these verses in 11 and 12. For God, once God has spoken, and twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. 
Some have therefore sought to reconcile these things in various and different ways, and most of them are unhelpful in my own opinion. One of the authors that I studied and read this week, one of those commentators, uses uh, sort of a way to reconcile these things by saying that Paul is not really talking about the final judgment. He is talking about a hypothetical judgment, a judgment that he raises as an illustration to sort of prove a point. However, as I've read the verses, I think it becomes very clear that Paul uses no such language of a hypothetical judgment. He is speaking here in verse 6 of the final judgment, and he is very clear he will render on that day. He will render to each one according to his works. And so I think the idea of a hypothetical judgment, no matter how helpful some may find it, to sort of get out of this problem that we're facing now is probably not helpful. Now, it's not only Psalm 62, and this is what we have to face. It's not only Psalm 62 that speaks this way. In fact, I could spend the rest of the sermon giving you examples of how the Bible speaks in this very way. For instance, our brother Roy Costa is leading our study and hopefully will return, Lord willing, in September to finish out the book of Job. And I know where he is. He's in the speeches of Elihu, who I argue, and I think he agrees, is the good man of the four friends. He speaks really for God to prepare Job to meet with God. And he says this in, I think, what is his first speech. Therefore, he says, hear me, you men of understanding... Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Jeremiah, the great weeping prophet of Jerusalem in chapter 17 of his prophecy says this, familiar words, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Well, you might say, Pastor, that's Old Testament. We're not bound by that anymore. I would say you're wrong in that statement, but it is God's word. He speaks this way clearly throughout the Old Testament. But for the sake of argument, let's turn to the New Testament, Matthew 7. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do or prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or John 5, verse 28 and 29 And he has given him authority to execute judgment, that is, to the Son, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, to the resurrection of judgment. In Matthew 25, you have a very lengthy, I won't read it, clear example of the division between the sheep and the goats, each representing, one, the sheep, the righteous, two, the goats, the wicked, one on the right hand, one on the left hand. 
And you remember the standard of judgment there. Remember what he said to both groups. When I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was naked, when I was in prison, you came to me, you did not come to me. And on the basis of these things, your works, I cast you either into eternal judgment for the wicked or I call you into eternal joy with my Father in heaven. Or 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 The verses read earlier, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. First Peter 1.17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then if we needed more, the very last book of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible, you have this. The very words of our Savior, behold, I am coming soon and bringing my recompense or judgment with me to repay each one for what he has done. And I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And there are countless, countless other places I could read and show you that what Paul says here, he will render to each one according to his works is what the Bible says throughout. Now, some more recent scholars, as many of you know, recent meaning back in the early 2000s, 2010, have opted to explain this by speaking of justification or our standing before God, sinners before a holy God. How can we stand? How are we justified? In two stages. In this false teaching, known uh, as you will probably remember, the new perspective on Paul, they have sought to reimagine how a man or a woman is right, found right, or made right before God, and said that justification takes place in two stages. The first stage is in this life, where we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But connected to that, inseparable from it, and part of the ground of our justification is a second level of justification where we are justified before God by our evangelical obedience. So God will judge us by our works, add that to whether we believed, and on the basis of both together, we will then be justified. That is a huge problem. It's been rejected by the church Praise God, because what it does is it put works on the wrong side of the equation. It says that we are justified not by Christ alone, but by Christ and works. It's Roman Catholic theology, and so it is to be rightly rejected. That is not what Paul is saying here or anywhere else in the Bible, in the places we have just read. Our confession is very helpful again in helping us to sort through this, perhaps in our minds, a very difficult uh, statement and passage that Paul writes here. In chapter 11 of our confession on justification, these wonderful and very helpful words, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing or putting into them some righteousness, but by pardoning their sins and by reckoning or accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything that is wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, 
nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. That statement is incredibly important. It is what Luther believed and embraced as he was brought to that understanding as he read the book of Romans. And what this statement says is that the only sole grounds of our justification or right standing before God is found in Christ alone and in our union with Christ by grace and through faith. But here's the important part and where we get into what Paul is saying. In the second section, under justification, listen to what they wrote, reflecting what the Bible in every place teaches. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument, the way in which we receive justification. Yet it is never alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. As you think about that, hearing it read, as you read it perhaps later, here's the solution to the dilemma and the problem. It solves the whole Paul and James problem. Remember Luther, who is credited with really bringing to light the teaching of Romans on justification in the 1500s. Remember Luther called the book of James, remember he called it? It's an epistle of straw, he said. It's another way of saying it's worthless. Why did he say that? Because he thought that James somehow was contradicting Paul. Remember the great theme, one of the great themes of the book of James. Faith without works is what? Dead. And so the reformers here, the divines in the 16th century or 17th century said, it's not a faith is never separated from the works that flow from it. Faith without works is indeed dead. And Paul understood that. In Romans 1, he speaks of the obedience of faith or a faith that yields or leads to obedience. In chapter 6, Paul will speak of the union of the believer to Jesus Christ and say that necessarily it must be that that union with Christ leads to obedience and a delight to obey God's commands. Those who are justified are also sanctified to do good works, necessarily so. Even the reading this morning from John 15 brought that out so very, very clearly regarding our union with Christ. I'm the vine, he says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And then, of course, you have Ephesians 2. We say 8 and 9. We should say 8 through 10. 
And when we read 8 through 10, we get the whole picture of what Paul there is communicating. And we see the beginning of, at least, an understanding of what Paul says here. For by grace you have indeed been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of your works, so that no one may boast. But remember, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we can say, I hope, we can say, pastor has not gone into heresy. Paul has not gone into heresy. But Paul is speaking very clearly, and we can echo Paul's own words when we say, yes, indeed, on that day of judgment, he will render to each one of us here tonight according to our works. Because the works flow out of a life in union with Christ. The works speak and prove that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And whether he looks at our life in Christ and our union with Christ or the works that flow out of it, he is looking at the same thing. And to say that he is reckoning or rendering to each one according to his works is saying he's going to give to each one according to their standing in Christ. And we'll see that in just a moment because Paul then in verses 7 through 10 speaks of this judgment, how it will be displayed, how will it work itself out. You notice there are only two ends here, two rewards, if you will, or what we deserve. The first, again, is eternal life in verse 7. And we know what that is, according to the scriptures. The second is to be under his wrath and fury. Those are two destinies that God will give to us according to our works. That's consistent with places like Psalm 1, where it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will indeed perish. But this is how it works. This is how it will be displayed on that day. You see it in these verses so very clearly. He speaks with respect to the works in verse 7, to those who with patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. To them he will give eternal life. Notice how he describes this here, patience in well-doing. They are persevering in their service to Christ. That's what he means. They are patiently working out their salvation with fear and trembling. He's identifying those who necessarily are united to Jesus Christ. And this is why they live. He talks about their motives, doesn't he? And I think that's what these words mean here when he says glory and honor and immortality. They do what they do for the glory and honor of Christ, for the glory and honor of God. Their motives from their heart is different now because of their union with Jesus Christ. They desire immortality or eternal life, and God will reward them based on these works with eternal life. You see, it's because they're already united to Jesus Christ. There's already a change of reality or or life They are demonstrating by their works that their lives have been forever changed by the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ. And so their works are being done out of that motive and heart. And Paul says God will look at those works and he will give them their just and due reward, fair and equitable. Because by their works he sees that they are indeed united to Jesus Christ. And their hearts and their motives are right before him because the spirit of Christ lives within them. But that is not so 
according to verse 8, to those who live differently. Notice how he describes them. On that day, there will be those who are self-seeking. That's a motive of the heart. Why do they live? Why do they do what they do? They do everything they do, the wicked, because they only seek their own pleasure. They are self-seeking, he says. They do not, in their behavior, obey the truth that God has revealed to them, but they obey instead unrighteousness. And they, too, will demonstrate by their works, and God's judgment is fair, As it's displayed in the final judgment, it is a fair and accurate and equitable judgment. He will judge them according to their works because their works reflect a life not in union with Christ, but self-seeking, not for the glory and honor of God, not for the desire to live forever with God in his presence, but rather for their own ends and their own purposes. And so he adds to this in verses 9 and 10, What I think is really a picture of their experience of this in this life. I think Paul in verses 9 and 10, sort of in a companion way to what he says about the final judgment, says in verse 9, there will be, and he reverses the order. Now he's speaking first to the wicked and then to the righteous. There will be tribulation and there will be distress for every human being who does evil. God is fair. It's to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. That is always what God had said. Christ was sent to the Jew first and then the Greek. The gospel in Acts goes to the Jew first and then the Greek. And so God is consistent and fair and equitable in his judgment. And he says, if you live an evil life, if your works are evil, there will be nothing, he says, but tribulation and distress in this life. But not so, he says. Not so, in verse 10, for the believer, not so, but glory and honor, similar to the first, but I think reflecting uh, the, the blessing of God upon our lives rather than living for his glory and for his honor. And he adds to this one peace, which in Romans is going to be a central thought that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, God is fair, he's equitable, he's consistent, and also for the Greek. So the Jew complains, God is unfair, he can't judge us this way. Paul says, no, God is fair, he's equitable, he is just in his judgment. And we'll see it on the day of judgment, and we see it now. God gives to us according to our works. That is the fairest way, if you will, to judge. And everyone on the same playing field, everyone level. You see, Paul is saying it's out of the heart when he talks about these in verse 8, especially uh, 7 and 8, when he talks about the motives. It's out of the heart that we live our lives. A changed heart means a changed life. And a changed life can be and will be evaluated and judged, Paul says, by God who sees all and before whom everything is laid bare and open. He will judge us, Paul says, according to our works. But in the final verse, which is brief like the first, he returns and says that God's righteous judgment now is defended It's defended, it's proven, if you will, not only by what he has said, but now by Paul again quoting from Scripture. 
He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, he says to the people. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He's not partial. He doesn't play favorites. To those to whom he's writing, that's exactly what they thought. God plays favorites. He plays favorites because he prefers and likes the Jews with whom he is in covenant, and he dislikes and hates the Gentiles. And if there's anything that is completely the opposite of who God is, is that kind of partiality. And so Paul is saying and repeating here, God shows no partiality. Where in the New Testament does that become abundantly clear? It's in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, the story you know of Peter's vision. He goes on the roof to pray. He sees this vision of this great sheet. It's filled with all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. The Lord says, remember, rise and eat. You know, at the same time in God's providence, God's doing some work in the life of Cornelius. There's a connection between the two. Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He's brought to understand Everything that God had tried to show him in that vision, the gospel, he says, is now going to go to the Gentiles, not just the Jew. Jew first, then the Gentiles. It's now going, Peter learns, now it's going to the Gentiles. And so in Acts chapter 10, after all of that, he goes to Cornelius' house, he baptizes Cornelius and his family, he opens his mouth, the text tells us, Luke tells us, in chapter 10, verse 34, opens his mouth and says, truly now I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter's saying the exact same thing as Paul is saying. God will render to each one according to his works. It won't be because you have a pedigree that's better than someone else. It won't be because you belong to a great, long-standing family of this church or any church. It won't be because you belong to this church or you've got great and godly parents, of which we have many in our church. It will not be because of some self-perceived privilege that you deserve better than someone else. God cannot be bribed. He will not be negotiated with. His judgment is righteous. It is fair. It is equitable because he does it on one basis, based upon your works, your life, how you live, what you do. Do you do what is right or do you do what is evil? His judgment is righteous all together. You see how that completely destroys the argument of the Jew who says, we have special privileges, we deserve special treatment. They really did expect to be treated differently because they were children of Abraham. And you see that spirit actually so often in the Old Testament when prophet after prophet is sent by God to the people 
You remember what they're saying? God would never do this to Jeremiah. God's never going to destroy Jerusalem. He put his name here. His glory is here. He'll never do that. They, they were lulled into this false belief that because they were God's chosen people, it didn't matter how they lived. It didn't matter what they did. They had an end. They had a connection. And God was bound to keep that. And Paul says, you're absolutely wrong. Because it will simply be based on your works that God will render his judgment. Each one, everyone, according to his works. Well, that's a lot to cover. I know there's a lot here. But I want to make two points to apply this to our lives this evening. And an encouragement as we end. The first is, let us together avoid the confusion that often comes when we discuss these things. We ought not to confuse these things at all. We have to be careful. One uh, minister, uh, I appreciate, mentioned this uh, in his writing uh, and sermon. He talked about what theologians call the sort of the root and the fruit idea. Uh, born out of and based on John 15, the text that I mentioned earlier, the idea that we are rooted and grounded, our roots are grounded in Christ, and that the ground of our justification, the fundamental ground of our justification is always and only Christ. We have to be clear about that with Luther, with Calvin, with all of the reformers, and with all of those who seek to be true to his word. The ground of our justification, the only reason ultimately that we are right and made right before God is only the person and work of Jesus Christ. But those who are justified necessarily and will always bear good fruit. Remember the words of Jesus, you will know them by their fruit. And that is what the Lord is saying in this passage. He will look us, look at us, our lives on that great day, and the Lord, of course, will see both. He will see us as united to his son, clothed in Jesus's righteousness. He will see that. He knows that. He accomplished that through the work of his son. But he will also look at and judge our works based out of that and flowing out of that union. He will see both. And Paul says he will look at those works and he will give those works the just reward accordingly. To those who do good works, prepared in advance that we should walk in, he will give us eternal life. And to those who do works of iniquity and unrighteousness, who do not obey the truth, he will give them their just reward, wrath and fury. There ought not to be any confusion. Both are true because they speak of the one person united to Jesus Christ and then living a life out of that union of good works to the praise of our God. And so Paul can say, and he does, he will render to each one, to you and to me, according to our works. What then does that mean practically? I can only say it the way the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, 
and so many other places in his letter speaks in the exact same way. The way that he says it so clearly in Titus chapter 2. Listen to how he says it. For the grace of God, he says, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the putting off of the old man. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. You see, there's the practical connection, isn't it? Those united to Jesus Christ, purified for him, are to be a people who are zealous. And in fact, Paul says to Titus, we are zealous for good works if the spirit of Christ lives within us. And so let me commend you, all of you tonight. And as Pastor Fisher did this morning, let me especially commend you in these words, those who are on the Armenia missions team. No, please know that your labors, as Paul says, that are done in the Lord are never done in vain. He will see them. He knows them. He created you for them. He takes delight in them, and he will judge them accordingly. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. And so as we sing, go and labor on those who will leave on Tuesday, labor on, spend and be spent in the service of your king. Your joy, I trust, is to do the father's will. It is the way that the master went who delighted to do his father's will. Should not the servant all of us who love Christ walk in that same path. And so be spent in service to your Lord and King. Never grow weary in well-doing. Love the loveless when you meet them there in Armenia or anywhere. Serve the needy. Do all that Christ calls you to do with joy, whether it's cleaning toilets so that the staff can receive training, uh, trauma training, whether it's doing menial tasks. Do everything that you do for the glory of your King and Lord. Those are the works you've been created for. Do it all for his pleasure and for his glory. And know this, that on the day of judgment, when you stand before your king and he judges you and he lays before you those works that you have done, all of those works done for the glory of Christ, for his honor and for the reward of eternal life, all of those works will be played out to the praise of his name and you will be judged on those works and you will receive because of them everlasting life. Fundamentally, it is because you are united to Christ and clothed in his righteousness, but he will render to you according to your works. And so rejoice in doing them, spend and be spent, whether you go to Armenia, whether you live tomorrow in the, in the normal life that we live, do it all for his glory. That is what we've been created for. 
Even the promises as we close now, even the promises that he gives are are rooted in this language. Have you ever thought of that? Remember the talents? Remember the words that are said as the people with talents five and one and ten? You remember all of that? Remember those words that each one of us longs to hear? Well done. It's a reference to works. It's a reference to the doing and the serving of Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. I'll give you much in the kingdom. As much as I want to hear those words, it's these words that we hear in Revelation that especially thrill me as I think about this idea of being judged according to our works. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may now rest from their labors, for their deeds do follow them. Their deeds will follow them, and we will one day, by God's grace, rest from all of our labors. Let us pray. Father, what a joy it is to know that we can have every confidence because we are in Christ. Those of us who have trusted in him and are found in him, his life in us, that the works we do for your glory and honor, for the name of Christ, are good works that will be recognized on that day. They will never earn us the merit that we can only earn and receive through our union with Christ but we will be judged by them to the glory and praise of your name. And we will be given our great reward, even eternal life in your son. And so we give you thanks for this passage. We give you thanks for all that you are teaching us. And we pray now that you would bless us and cause us to be faithful and zealous for good works. The very works that you have created us for, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.